Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm your host, John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sent shockwaves around the world. It will take years to sort through the political, economic, and humanitarian ripple effects that are ongoing. It's been a time for nations to stand up and be counted. Many countries have made clear that they stand with Ukraine in a united front against Russian aggression, sending both aid and participating in sanctions. Others, for a variety of reasons, have attempted to navigate neutral ground, while a few have actually supported Russia. Today, our panel will survey various responses across the Americas and consider what it all might mean for an emerging new world order. Please welcome back our cast of contributors. First up, Latin American Program Director, Cindy Arntz. Hi, John. Hey, Cindy. Brazil Institute Fellow, Daniela Campeo. Hi, John. Hi, Danny. Mexico Institute Director, Andrew Rudman. Hi, John. Hello, Andrew. And last but not least, Canada Institute Director, Christopher Sanz. Hey, Chris. Hi, John. Well, uh, let's. I, I thought we could start with sort of surprises. Think of it this way. Uh, as you survey the landscape and you look at various responses across the region to the invasion, uh, is there anything that jumps out of you as a surprise? Or was it predictable which countries might go in which direction based on all the variables under consideration? Cindy, can we begin with you? Sure. I think there has been an element of predictability um, in the response of countries such as Venezuela, Nicaragua, to a lesser extent Cuba, um, in support of the Russian invasion, or at least um, uh, some more full-throated, the Venezuelan regime, the Nicaraguan regime, the Cuban regime, a little bit more um, circumspect uh, in in saying things like, uh, you have to understand the broader context of what's going on. for me, and, and maybe Donnie can talk about this a little bit more, um, the biggest surprise is to see uh, President Bolsonaro so openly embracing uh, Putin against his foreign ministry, his own vice president, coming out openly critical of members of his government and his cabinet who have um, criticized uh, the invasion and the, and the you know, related um, human rights uh, atrocities. Um, One of the things that's disappointing but not surprising is the number of Latin American countries who have simply abstained on resolutions in the United Nations to condemn the Russian action. Um, And I'm thinking particularly of El Salvador, um, also Bolivia. Thanks, Cindy. Uh, Danny, uh, Cindy teed that up for you. What is going on in, in Brazil? Why why uh, has Bolsonaro decided to chum up to Vladimir Putin? Yeah, John, Cindy got straight to the point. There is a tension, I think, between diplomacy and Bolsonaro's closest uh, allies and, and uh, advisors, including the military. And that's why the response has been somehow incoherent. So on one side, Brazil condemned the invasion at the UN, but did not sign the OAS resolution, abstained from suspending Russia from the Human Rights Council. So it's, it's a big, big response. 
uh, and if you remember the, the Brazilian representative was one of the few altogether with China, uh, Syria, Venezuela, that remained in the room when Lavrov uh, spoke in Geneva. But when it comes to the president, Sandy is completely right. Despite his claiming neutrality, Bolsonaro has condemned sanctions against Russia, has criticized the channeling of weapons to Ukraine, and doesn't even try to hide his uh, personal sympathy for Vladimir Putin. It, it's interesting because you see sometimes uh, interviews when he reproduces the rhetoric of liberation of Putin, of liberation of some parts of Ukraine. So the, the reasons uh, uh, for this, I think one interesting thing to notice that every time Bolsonaro talks about Putin, he mentions gratitude for his support for Brazil's sovereignty over the Amazon, which is something that has been criticized among USD countries, Macron specifically, and Putin uh, stood up to to defend the Brazilian sovereignty in the Amazon. This is one 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 thing. In public speeches, Bolsonaro's main argument is that Russia's exporter of fertilizers, one of the main exporters to Brazil, and opposing the country would create problems for the Brazilian agribusiness. I find this actually Brazil seems to have no more than three months uh, of stocks of fertilizers, so it's a, it's in a very vulnerable position. But I think this where's the Argument makes some sense. It's inconsistent with the fact that, for example, Bolsonaro has been confronting China since day one of the government, and China is the main market. So it's, it seems like it doesn't doesn't make much sense. There's one point that we, we should keep an eye is that the most of the the group that went with Bolsonaro to Russia before uh, the invasion was uh, the military, his military advisors. So there are some people in Brazil that believe that this has to do with potential military collaboration. And if this is true, especially in the second potential government of Bolsonaro, which would lean towards authoritarianism, this is a major, major source of concern. Uh, it, it would be just following the steps of, for example, Venezuela. If, in fact, Bolsonaro likes strong men, right? He, he admires Putin as much as he admires Viktor Orban, and he's leaning in this direction away from the OECD and towards this kind of regime. Yeah, flocking theory comes in, the birds of a feather, right? Uh, uh, Andrew. Yeah, John, you know, when, when I was listening to Dani, I was thinking some of what, some of the things she said about Bolsonaro, I, I think also apply to AMLO, to Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who Mexico too has had sort of a an inconsistent approach where, you know, Mexico is on the Security Council as a non-permanent member now, uh, but they too abstained to kick Russia off of the Human Rights Council. Um, AMLO was very critical of the United States and Europe for sending arms to Ukraine and uh, really has taken a, it, it reminds me very much of, you know, almost a Cold War approach where if the U.S. does it, there's sort of a, a knee jerk in, in Latin America reaction to take the other side. Um, as I said, AMLO has criticized the Europeans and, and the U.S. for providing aid to Ukraine. He's complained that that aid has not been provided in those levels to Central America, despite uh, longstanding requests. So it's really been quite interesting. And I, I think, again, perhaps in some ways like Bolsonaro, it's very much a foreign policy of domestic policy approach. And so AMLO is playing to his domestic audience and I think reflecting those old traditional 1970s views. And, and I think the real risk there is that it may have some long-term damage to the bilateral relationship. And that's why the foreign ministry and the uh, UN ambassador are trying to walk a fine line and, and have a more traditional, more, I, I think, global approach uh, to what's happening. 
Andrew, so are you su- suggesting that uh, popular support is reflected by these, as you characterize them, sort of old Cold War type impulsive reactions, anti-U.S. reactions? What do we know about popular support? I, I think that there is, uh, that AMLO at least believes that his his base is supportive of this approach. I'm not sure that um, that I'd go as so far as to say that that all Mexicans are in any way supportive of the Russian invasion, although members of the, the Mexican Congress did create a Mexico-Russia Friendship Commission in the midst of the invasion, which obviously is not a, not a great move. Chris Sands. Well, just to reflect a little bit on the Canada side, it's very similar to what the others have said in that the Canadian political leadership is following domestic political considerations in in its response to Ukraine, but they're very different. Canada has the third largest population of Ukrainian speakers, ethnic Ukrainians, after Ukraine itself and Russia. Some people say the second largest diaspora. And unlike some ethnic groups in Canada, they are highly organized. There's a Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. So that that you know, 1.4 million people really have an electoral impact. And not only the Liberal Party, uh, which is in government now with Christian Freeland, perhaps the world's most famous Ukrainian uh, Canadian, after maybe Wayne Gretzky, depending on who you're asking, um, uh, they're really in the lead right now and working very hard to keep that population um, supportive of the policy. But the conservatives under Stephen Harper also had very good relations with Ukrainian Canadians. So there's a great unity in trying to support Ukraine now. 81% of Canadians favor more sanctions. But interestingly, 85% are worried about the impact on the Canadian economy. And if there's a if there's a downside to where Canada is now, it's these two things. Canada has supplies of oil, natural gas, and from the, we were talking earlier about fertilizer, of potash. They're the second largest producer after Russia. So they could be addressing fertilizer as well. So when you look at countries that are trying to honor the sanctions uh, that we're trying to put on Russia, Canada is a great alternative if it could get its product to market. And here we come to the age-old problem of Canada, pipelines that can't get to the sea and product that can't get because of limited rail capacity out to the market. So uh, Canada would like to play an even bigger role than they're already playing. It's popular and there's very little pushback. Want to, want to shift gears to the economic impact and which countries are most vulnerable. But before we do that, I know, Danny, you wanted to say something about popular support. And Cindy, I think you also had a comment. So let's take a couple of quick comments and then we'll we'll shift gears. Donnie. So we have uh, surveys that show that in Brazil, two thirds of the population believe that Ukraine is correct and that they, are, they condemn Russia. Uh, and uh, two thirds also think that Brazil should be neutral uh, in, the, in the conflict. There's another survey that says that 48% of the Brazilians see, uh, with a lot of skepticism, the position of Bolsonaro uh, favorable to Russia in the in the conflict. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Cindy? Sure. I'd just like to say, I mean, in response to what uh, Andrew was saying about the reaction of the Mexican government, what is so ironic to me is that Latin America, because it has suffered so many invasions um, over the course of history during the colonial period by the French and the Sp- especially the Spanish, but then in the 18th and 19th century, in, excuse me, in the 19th and 20th centuries by the United States. And so to see governments um, find ways to turn themselves into pretzels, uh, not to condemn the open military aggression of one country against another, 
is shocking um, and uh, and frankly very disappointing. Um, but you know, maybe to shift a little bit to the to the economic dimensions, um, John, that you raised, it's going to have a very very significant impact um, in three areas. One on oil, um, not energy prices overall, but especially oil on food prices and also on levels of inflation. And the oil energy nexus is kind of mixed because you have countries like um, Venezuela and also Colombia um, that have as their principal export oil. Um, Ecuador and Guyana and Mexico are also major exporters of oil, so they're going to benefit from the rise in prices. But countries like Peru, Chile, who are also major commodity exporters, are major importers of oil, along with Central America and the Caribbean. And so it's going to have a differential impact. But I think all countries are going to be hit by the rise in food prices, which has already been pointed to by the World Food Program and, and the Food and Agriculture Organization um, as a potential crisis on top of COVID, you know, from which the region is just barely um, recovering. Russia is the largest wheat exporter um, in, uh, in the world. Um, Ukraine is number three in terms of exports of, of wheat. And, you know, they're also exporters of, uh, of, of sunflower oil and other kinds of things. And, um, and the price of food, which already comprises a disproportionate amount of the basic expenditures of poor middle and middle income households, I think is gonna be very dramatic. And then as we've seen in the United States and around the world, the increase in interest rates will have um, a major impact on the ability of Latin American countries to repay debt um, and also makes mm. anybody who holds uh, a loan or has a loan uh, makes it more expensive for them to, to pay that back. Yeah, we're just that tip of the iceberg uh, with the kind of impacts that you're describing. Danny. Two, two points regarding what Cindy said. The first one about the, the invasions and the history of invasions in Latin America. I think that the way that some people put this is exactly all these invasions always happen and there was not such backlash as in the case of Russia. So it's the kind of comparing, you know, excusing one uh, bad thing on other bad things in the past. So that's sad, but that's true. But with respect to the, the winners and losers, I'm still very skeptical about whether there are going to be winners in this story, because we've seen in previous like money booms that you have the, the appreciation of the currency that, that prevents inflation. And right now in the last boom we had, we didn't have this. We, had, we didn't have appreciation of the currencies and everybody's feeling the price of uh, not only oil, but, but food. So in that sense, I, 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 I think I see more... I'm more pessimistic than that. I think that we're going to be losers and strong losers. So let's put it this way. Uh, Chris, I wonder, you know, if I'm channeling my uh, inner Benjamin Gadan here, you know, I, I'm hearing Benjamin's voice. If he were here, he would say, you know, well, but on the other hand, there's always these possibilities of opportunities emerging longer term. And both Cindy and Donnie have at least spoken to that. But I'm wondering, Chris, are there things like energy independence, like green energy that are near and dear to the Trudeau government's uh, agenda? Are there opportunities here as well? Um, 
Yes, uh, for for sure, and and I am I'm skeptical. Well, no, I'm hesitant to go down this road only because not because I don't hear Benjamin Gidan's voice all the time. I always do, but but also because I think that this is more in some ways of the domestic considerations that that uh, Cindy and Daniela and and Andrew talked about, like. People don't want to let a crisis go to waste. And here's a crisis. And so for some people, they think, oh, this is great. Let's go to non-fossil fuels because that was our agenda anyway. And Ukraine gives us a way to take that headline and advance that cause. Um, In Canada, divisions are much sharper on the energy future of the country than they are on Ukraine. And they're actually much sharper on whether people like Justin Trudeau and his government, which is still in minority, or whether they would like to vote somebody else in. So strangely, I think actually Canada would struggle to build a, a majority for real real change. What they have is a majority for supporting the Ukrainians. And so far that hasn't translated into, into a political momentum for either party, but maybe different in other parts of, of the hemisphere. Andrew, I wonder, you know, if you look at Europe, the, the thing that we've spent a lot of time talking about either directly or indirectly over the course of the last several years, the sort of the rise of the, the populist strongman type leader, AMLO certainly is part of that group in some ways, not in all ways. Uh, but what we've seen in Europe is sort of those voices uh, being muted a bit in response to what's happening uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, what Danny and, and Cindy have talked about in Brazil, we haven't seen that in 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 Mr. Bolsonaro's case, but what are you thinking as far as long-term for the region in terms of populism and strongman type rhetoric? Does this change the equation in the Americas? It's a good, it's a good question, John. I mean, certainly it took him about a month, but, but AMLO has now condemned the invasion. And I'm not sure if that reflects the foreign minister convincing him to, to get on side, so to speak, or, or whether, he realized that, you know, the, the pictures, the information that we're seeing out of Ukraine, and it makes it pretty hard, I, I think, to suggest that, um, to parrot an old phrase, that there are good people on both sides. Um, but it, it, it's an interesting question. It does seem that a, a populist leader could either interpret what, you know, what Putin did and the world reaction, that there are lines I can't cross. Uh, but there's a pretty long line, I think, between what you what you might do internally in crossing a border. I mean, I don't think any of my colleagues would, would envision, I certainly don't, any strongman in Latin America crossing a border. But internally, it, it could well embolden them in some ways that, you know, as long as you do it within your own country, uh, the world won't get as upset. I'm wondering, you know, the uh, President Biden met with uh, Prime Minister Modi earlier in the week that we're recording this discussion in an attempt, among other things, to uh, see if India would be willing to take a stronger stand against Russia. Are there countries in the Americas that could be useful in that regard, who could do more, whether it be through sanctions or other types of aid, humanitarian or military or otherwise? Are, are there other countries that could be helpful in deterring or ending Russian aggression? Chris Sands. Uh, John, I- uh, yeah, let me jump in here. I, maybe not deterring Russia, but I think one of the uh, knock-on effects that we have to get ready for is a wave of Ukrainian refugees. So far, it's been Poland and other frontline states that have taken the, the vast majority of them. And one part of the debate that Canada is beginning to consider is, with so many Ukrainian speakers, 
temporary uh, transfers to Canada might be one of the safest places to bring all those refugees so that a few countries don't have to bear that burden alone. The trick is the United Nations Convention on Refugees says, well, it's better to keep them closer to the country they're fleeing because it makes it easier to repatriate them. It, it's just a question of whether we see that happening in the near term. And especially if you are separated from other members of your family who are fighting, you worry that you might be too far away. But there's certainly a lot that Canada can do. I think there are a lot of countries in the Western Hemisphere that could provide some temporary support. And even if they can't take in refugees, providing some financing to help the people adjust right now is something that could uh, help us sustain what looks like it might be settling in to be a long campaign. Uh, and on the human side, less than the fighting, I think there's much greater potential for countries in the Western Hemisphere to rally uh, in sympathy because migration has been such a, a lightning rod here in our own region that people could maybe empathize with that, that situation. Any other thoughts on, on responses from the region that we aren't seeing that could possibly be helpful? Chris brings up a, a really significant one. Can other countries be a home for displaced people? I would tend to agree to to take an issue with what Chris said. I mean, a large country like Canada might be able to absorb more. Certainly the United States can. But the main migrant crisis that is affecting Latin American countries themselves is the crisis of Venezuelan refugees and migrants. And then to a second, you know, and at a, a, a at a second level, the number of Nicaraguans who are fleeing into Costa Rica. Um, we think of the Central American migration as mostly being, you know, from the so-called North, Northern Triangle to the United States. But there are significant numbers um, of Nicaraguans in Costa Rica. So that's also a big problem. And I think that, you know, as we see the economic effects deepen from, from the Russian invasion, as uh, the recovery from COVID, you know, continues to sort of bump along with, you know, some steps forward and some steps back, um, the idea that, um, Latin American countries would be able to take in large numbers, I think, is is uh, is fairly limited, with the uh, exception that places, um, say, Argentina, maybe even Chile, but Argentina more, um, that don't have large refugee populations, and because they're so much further south, they don't have nearly as many Venezuelans, um, could do that. But you also see in a country like Chile, where there are, you know, riots, um, in the northern part of the country against Haitian migrants and and uh, and Venezuelans as well. So, you know, in times of economic difficulty, um, finding generosity towards migrant populations is really tough politically. Yeah, Andrew Rudman. Yeah, I, I, just to follow up on what Cindy was saying, uh, you know, one of the sort of unintended outcomes, I think, is you're seeing that Ukrainians are winding up on the U.S.-Mexico border, and they appear to be getting access to the U.S. more quickly than Central American migrants, some of whom have obviously been waiting for a long time. So that that creates uh, certainly some interesting challenges and, and it gets into issues of discrimination and, and disequal treatment that I know we don't have time to get into today. Yeah, well, speaking of which, we are just about out of time, but I wanted to do a quick... Any final thoughts from anyone before we do run out of time? I know, Danny, you did want to weigh in on the strongman question, and we and I, I'm, I'm unfortunately missed your digital hand raising. So there's a, still a few seconds left if you'd like to comment on that. And I know, Cindy, you also wanted to make a comment. No, no, no. I just agree with Cindy and Andrew. I think that solidarity is not the... what there's. It's not in... A, 
how can I say that it's a possibility right now in a region that is in the middle of a crisis and uh, and very frustrated with immigration issues, as Andrew said. Right. This new crisis didn't make all the old crises go away, unfortunately. Cindy, you had a final thought. Sure. Another thing that that um, I think where there's a lot of uncertainty is what the impact of the Russian invasion will be on the relationship between Russia and China, China being an enormously significant trading partner um, and source of investment and, and finance for many Latin American countries. And in fact, the largest trading partner um, of many um, commodity exporting countries in South America. Um, China itself is the second largest importer of Russian oil. So how the sanctions are going to affect it, how the war is going to affect China's ability to import Russian oil. It also gets um, significant amounts of aluminum and other kinds of metals. Um, so there's this kind of indirect uh, impact of the Russian invasion as it affects Latin America's relationship with China, because China and Russia um, have such uh, an important economic as well as political relationship. Yeah, I can absolutely say that from the perspective of Brazil, there is a major concern that this proximity between Russia and China means more competition uh, for the Brazilian commodities coming from Russia. Well, uh, as is the case in most things we talk about, uh, it's not going away, right? So we'll have a chance to revisit some of these issues, unfortunately. Uh, thank you, Cindy, Daniela, Chris, and Andrew. Appreciate your insights. This episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Cecily Fascinella, and Zoe Reed, with the assistance of Christina Sada-Segovia, Anita Kirschenbaum, and Caden Kutz. As always, we are grateful to those of you behind the microphone for making all of us on the mic sound better. Uh, we hope you enjoyed today's discussion and that you'll choose to join us again soon for our next episode. Until then, for America's 360 and the Wilson Center, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for your time and interest. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.